Today's reading comes from John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word, it is true, and is given out as love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Lyle. Well, hey, it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, We get get to now gather as God's people, as a church family, and just celebrate this awesome season of year, this Advent Christmas season. If you're not familiar with the word Advent, if if you've not been a part of a church in the past that does Advent, Advent is this Latin word for coming or arrival, and it's this uh, historic church season where we spend the four weeks leading up to Christmas to kind of build the anticipation in our souls for what the significance is of Jesus coming in the flesh, uh, God uh, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that, that's what we're going to be studying these next uh, few weeks. And so we, we're going to do a four-part sermon series going through the first part of uh, John chapter 1 to really focus on what it means for God to be dwelling here among us. And so I think this is uh, always my favorite time uh, to be a church family because there's so many ways that we can be intentional with one another as we pursue our maturing in Christ together, what it means to be followers of Christ. I also think this is a really important time of year just when you evaluate the last few years and, and what we've been through as a, as a church and as a culture. If you think back to a few years ago, like Christmas of 2020, everyone was, was still kind of dealing with the, the, the pandemic and we're wondering uh, wh- what was going to happen and everyone was kind of sneaking around at Christmas being with family and, and giving each other COVID and stuff like that. Uh, and then in 2021, it was like the restrictions were lifted. There was this just general excitement of like, we're back, baby. Here we go. We're going to celebrate Christmas, big Christmas parties everywhere, lots of festivities and celebration. And now here's we hit Christmas 2022, it feels like as I talk to a lot of the people here in our church, it feels like there's just a general sense of heaviness emotionally in a lot of our lives. It feels like some of the emotional bills from the last two years are coming due right around this time of year. And so there's a general sense of heaviness and and anxiety in a lot of ways. And sometimes there's some sense of depression and despair. And a lot of times it feels like um, if I can just hole up for the next month and maybe not see anyone, that would be the perfect Christmas for us. That's how a lot of us are feeling. And so so with that, what I want us to do is, is say, how does the gospel of Jesus, how is the good news of who Jesus is better news for us than anything else that the culture could provide, right? Because because as everyone is feeling depressed and discouraged, the message we get from our society is we need to lean into the spirit of Christmas, right? We we hear that phrase a lot, the spirit of Christmas. And and that that phrase, the spirit of Christmas, is very uh, vague and ethereal, kind of this loose concept that no one really knows how to define. The best I can take of what the spirit of Christmas is in our culture is if it's like a recipe, right? If you took like one part sugar cookie or, or gingerbread, if you prefer that, take one part Christmas movies, take one part Christmas carrots, add four parts alcohol, stir it all together, and what you get is the spirit of Christmas. That's what people seem to be pushing in our, in our culture right now. But the reason the spirit of Christmas is pushed is because it seems so non-offensive, right? It, it seems so unintruding. We can all believe whatever we want to believe. We can do our own thing, have these nice, fuzzy, warm feelings, and not really engage the hardship that is many of our lives, especially this time of year. And so what we're going to do for these next four weeks is say the spirit of Christmas will not help us in any way. Okay, that, that generic thing will only numb us to the pain we're feeling. Instead, what we get to lean into as followers of Christ is the person of Jesus. Okay? The person of Christ will always triumph over the spirit of Christmas. And the hope and the, the joy and the peace and the love and all the things that we're longing for as human beings, we will only find that in the person of Christ. We will not find that in the spirit of Christmas. And so what we're going to do for this, uh, these next four weeks 
Like I mentioned, we're going to study the first uh, 18 verses of John chapter 1. It's probably some of the most dense theology about who Jesus is in the whole New Testament. We really get, we're going to take four weeks and just dive into it a verse at a time and see what it is that God has for us. And our prayer throughout this whole series or these next four weeks is that we would do what the Apostle John wants us to do in this book of John. Like he said uh, in the reading that Lyle just did, that, that in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we will have life in his name. Our prayer is that as these next four weeks happen, that we would lift our gaze from all the different mundane activities of Christmas, the the things that take so much of our time and attention, and instead lift our gaze to the person of Jesus and find the hope that we're longing for in him. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we'll study uh, John chapter 1 together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for your presence here with us this morning. I thank you that we do get seasons like Advent and Christmas where, where there's these uh, uh, cultural artifacts around us that can remind us that, that it is all about your son, Jesus, coming to earth to be born a, a man, uh, to live and obey in our place, and then to one day uh, die for our sins and then rise three days later defeating sin and death. And so I pray that as we spend these next four weeks studying just a few verses of this amazing book of the Gospel of John, I pray that you would open each of our hearts, God, that we, we would receive the gift of this season uh, in a special way, the gift of, of understanding what it means for your son to have been born to this earth, to take on human flesh and to, to be the savior that we all need. So would you just open our hearts, open our minds, open our souls. May we uh, leave this place more in love with you than when we came. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is Bibles on the table. On the table Bible, it's page 886. And I think it would be really good to have the Word open in front of you so you can read along as we go through. What I'm going to do this morning as we get started is just I'm going to lay the the groundwork for the whole passage by just quickly, or not quickly, by by meditatingly, and meditatingly is not a word in case you're wondering, uh, by meditating as we read through all 18 verses of this uh, uh, we're going to go through for these next four weeks. I want to just kind of lay the groundwork of what it is we're going to be studying. And so as I read this uh, slowly, as we ponder these words, just say a prayer in your own spirit that God would show you the truths that he has to reveal to you these next four weeks. So would you read, uh, listen as I read uh, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
Okay, so isn't that a beautiful passage? I think it's some of the most, uh, not only the, the densest theology of who Jesus is, but it's also some of the most beautiful poetry that you read in the New Testament, this amazing picture of who Jesus is. And so we get this awesome privilege of the next four weeks just studying a few verses at a time. We're going to do the first five verses this morning. And what we're going to hopefully do is kind of pull back from the frenetic, hectic, busy pace of life and just look at these five verses and realize that the, the truth that we see this morning is that you and I are the furthest thing from God. God is nothing like us. In, in no way does our personalities, does our, does our, our limitations, does our, our finiteness, none of that in any way relates to who God is. Okay, but, but through the beauty of the incarnation, through the beauty of the word becoming flesh, God is no longer the furthest thing from us. Right? Even though we are the furthest thing from God, through the incarnation, God is no longer the furthest thing from us. And so, and so, so th- th- what, what happens when we encounter a passage like this is what it should do is it should stir some awe and some wonder and some worship in our hearts. It, it's like that, that Grand Canyon thing that a lot of times pastors talk about, right? No one goes to the Grand Canyon and worships themselves, right? You, you go to the Grand Canyon and you realize that you are so small and insignificant compared to this amazing bit of creation that's out in front of you. Okay, that, that's almost always true. It's actually not true for everyone. There's, there is a, a sad number of people who actually die every year going to visit the Grand Canyon. And what they found is the most common people who, who pass away because they get too close to the edge and fall over is 21 to 25-year-old males who think that they are invincible and they get too close to the, the edge of the Grand Canyon. And so if you're here 21 to 25, I'm sorry, that's kind of insulting, but we're trying to protect you. I would wait to go to the Grand Canyon until you're in your 30s at least. It's more wisdom. <laughs> But the reason that stands out is because there's something about this young male brain that says, I don't need to be in awe of anything. I can make this on my own. I can handle my life on my own. There's this self-confidence, this arrogance, this self-absorption that says, I don't really need anyone else. Okay, and that kind of attitude, what it does, is it's, it's dangerous for your health if you're somewhere like the Grand Canyon, but it's dangerous for your soul when you encounter verses like this and you're tempted to leave unchanged or you're tempted to leave not full of awe and worship about the beauty of who Jesus is. And so when you hear that phrase, you are the furthest thing from God, a lot of times that can sound offensive to the people who think I got this on my own. So I'm the furthest thing from God, watch me. Right? If I work really hard, I can try and I can make my life mean all the things that I want it to mean. So that, that, that idea of you're the furthest thing from God is offensive if you think you can do it on your own. But to the other group of people here this morning, the people that feel weighed down and heavy laden and burdened by all the things going on in our life and in our world and in our souls, that news that we're the furthest thing from God is actually a sense of relief. It's this sense of freedom that says, maybe I don't have to run the universe. Maybe I don't have to even run my own life. Maybe I can rely on someone who is above me and over me and more powerful than me to actually lean into what it means to, to rest in the presence of God. And so the, this, this idea of we're the furthest thing from God, that should be an invitation to all of us to say, as we focus on our smallness, and as we focus on the greatness and the majesty and the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, that gap should be the most comforting thing there is. It should remind us that our hope is found not in us trying harder or trying to live a little better or, or, or try to be a little stronger, but instead our hope can come from resting in the fact that God is the furthest thing from us, but through the incarnation, God is no longer the furthest thing from us. That we are the furthest thing from God, but through the incarnation, God is no longer the furthest thing from us. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. And as we look at these verses, focus on your own insignificance. Okay? Focus on your own smallness. Focus on the fact that these verses could never be said about you or me. Listen to the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so what, what we're seeing right away is, is John is using this word, the word word to describe who Jesus is. It's this Greek word logos. I'm sure you've heard that before if you've uh, grown up in church. But, but what John is doing is taking this brilliant approach to describing who Jesus is where he takes this, this idea of the logos, which is a very popular Greek concept. In the, in the Greek mind, the logos was this idea of uh, a, a reason or a force that gives order to the universe. And then also in the Jewish mind, who he's also writing to a Jewish audience, God always created through his word. He, his word had a force to it. It was God's self-expression and the power of God through speech. He's combining that and saying that the word, the logos, is not some Greek philosophical concept. It's not just the, the words that come out of the mouth of God. It is, in fact, a person. It is an entity that has existed before time. It, it was before anything began to exist in the universe. The word was there, but it also was this, this interpersonal relationship with God. The, the, the word existed with God, and at the same time, the word was God. This is the the foundations of where we get this doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that that God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that that unity of the Trinity, we say there is only one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God. But in that unity of the Trinity, there's also this diversity of three persons who relate to each other in eternal love and camaraderie and unity and all of those things. And what John is doing is saying that that second person of the Trinity, the Logos, the Son of God— he existed before time began. He, he is eternal. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. Okay, and, and so, so that, that's right there is our first tip, that Jesus is in no way similar to us, right? We are not eternal. Jesus is eternal. And this idea of eternity is so hard for us to wrap our, our minds around, right? Because we're finite, because we're small, we can't even comprehend what it means for eternity to be a thing. Uh, the best illustration I've heard of, of what, uh, what eternity is like came from my dad. When I was about eight years old, we went to the ocean for the first time. And so you're standing there as this little kid looking at the ocean for the first time, all the grandeur and everything. And and my dad told me to like, stick my finger down in the sand, and if you just, like, don't even grab the sand. Just stick your finger in it and pull it up. And what happens is you have, like, 50 grains of sand on your finger, right? And he's saying, now imagine if you, you took just one of those grains of sand from the Pacific Ocean, and you walked it all the way by foot, all the way over to Florida, and you dropped it off on the Atlantic coast. And then you walked all the way back to the Pacific Ocean, and you grabbed one more grain of sand. And then you went all the way back to the Atlantic and dropped it off. And you did that in the entire time until you had emptied the entire Pacific coast of every single grain of sand. Okay, that is just the smallest glimpse of what eternity actually is. Okay, that, that little illustration is barely a drop in the bucket of what it means for Jesus to be eternal. And so what we're seeing here, what, what John is drawing our attention to, is if Jesus is eternal, he is divine. He, he, you cannot exist before creation and not be God. The definition of what it means to be God is the creator of all things, the one who existed before anything else existed. And so when that is labeled to Jesus, what he's saying is Jesus is not a created being. He's not some sub-deity. He's not kind of God. He is completely, fully, and truly God. And this is what Jesus himself affirms later in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, before Abraham was, I am. And when the Jewish leaders heard that, they picked up rocks and they tried to kill Jesus. Because they understood what Jesus is doing in that verse is saying, Before Abraham was, I am. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that in Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses, Moses says, who should I say is sending me to deliver your people? He says, tell them, I am has sent you. 
And the Hebrew, the word I am, isn't just I am present. It has all kinds of connotations of not only I am, but I will be. Like I, I was, I am, and I will be. All of those things are bound up in this title that God chooses for himself of I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And so when, Je- when John applies this to Jesus, he's saying that he existed before time. When Jesus applies this to himself and says, before Abraham was, I am, he's not just saying, I am really old. He's not just saying, I've been here longer than you. He's saying, I am eternally existent. I have existed outside of the structures of time. And I think a lot of times we think of eternity as just like a really long time. Even that illustration I used of the sand on the seashore thing, all that does is take this known concept of time and it lengthens it to a really long time. But what John is doing here talking about Jesus is saying there is time as it exists and then there's God. There is the word, there is Jesus. He has eternally existed. Before anything came into existence, Jesus was there. So that's where we get this first glimpse of, you know, I think I am the furthest thing from God. I I am finite, I am small, I am bound by time, I am temporal, all of these things. But Jesus is eternally existent. He is in a different category than I am entirely. And listen where John goes next in verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not a single thing that exists in the universe made that was made. Because when we talk about our smallness, right, the fact that we're bound by time, we also have to talk about our smallness and the fact that we're bound by space, that we exist in one particular place and not in another. But if Jesus is the creator of every single thing that exists in the universe, then he is, again, in a wholly different category than you or I are. So, so think, think about for a second about how big the universe is. Again, I have another illustration for you that's going to use a grain of sand analogy. Apparently, this is the morning for sand illustrations. But if you shrunk our earth, the entire earth, if you shrunk it to a, the size of a single grain of sand, our solar system would be the size of Mile High Stadium. Can you imagine like a one grain of sand in Mile High Stadium or in Vesco Field or whatever it is those uh, Broncos are calling their home stadium now these days. If you shrunk our world to a grain of sand, the entire solar system would fit in the size of uh, the Mile High Stadium. If you shrunk our solar system to the grain of sand, again, we're getting smaller and smaller again, then our galaxy, the Milky Way, would be a thousand times bigger than Mile High Stadium. That's how small our Earth is compared to our solar system, compared to our galaxy. If you shrunk our galaxy to the size of a grain of sand, the visible universe that they know of right now would be the size of Mile High Stadium again. Okay, so like, it's like this in infinity upon infinity, bigger than our minds can in any way comprehend. And what John is saying is that Jesus himself, as the word, as the logos, created every single thing that exists, seen and unseen. All of those things came into being because Jesus, the Son of God, spoke them into existence. Wasn't, there was nothing made that was made apart from who Jesus is. And so what he's drawing our attention to here, and what anytime when the Bible talks about creation, what they're trying to draw our attention to is if Jesus has the power to create the universe, then he has the right to rule the universe as well. Okay, that's my, one of my favorite examples to use. We're all familiar with uh, Bob Ross, right? You know, the, the, hap, the painter on PBS, the curly hair, all that guy. Um, if you are Bob Ross, where does he say you can put a happy little tree, right? You can put it anywhere you want. And why can you put it anywhere you want? Because it's your own little world, right? It, because it's your little world, you can put happy trees anywhere you want. And that's exactly what the Bible describes as with Jesus. The reason Jesus has the power to rule the universe is because he had the authority to create the universe in the first place. Right? Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1. 
Verse 8, it says, But the Son of God, he says, Your throne, O Lord, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's saying that Jesus, as the Son of God, has the right, the authority, the kingly scepter to rule the universe. But why does Jesus have the right to rule the universe? Verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. If Jesus has the power to create, he has the authority to rule. And again, we see this is a reminder that, that you and I are nothing like God, right? We, we, we can't even rule our own lives. We can't rule our own homes, our own families. Uh, uh, don't even talk about trying to rule your own children, right? How difficult that could be. Uh, but we can't rule anything in our life because we don't have the power to create. All that we can do is move matter around and try to reorganize some things. But if Jesus has the power to create the entire universe, he has the right to rule as the Lord of the universe, uh, Abraham Kuyper was a, a Dutch theologian. He, I love this quote. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Okay, that's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. There's not a single square inch in the whole universe that Jesus is not Lord over. And, and here's why this is important at this time of year at Christmas. Because when we talk about our lives, when we talk about the mess that we've been in for the last few years, when we talk about the people among us and ourselves that are suffering and experiencing hardship, what we're saying is it feels like darkness is invading our lives. It feels like if we try really hard, we can try to keep the darkness at bay, but as soon as you let go of your grip, one second, it envelops you like a wave that slams you into the ground. It just pours over you time and time again. But if Jesus is eternal and divine and infinite and the ruler of the universe, then perhaps Jesus has the authority and the ability to bring some life, some hope, some peace, some love, some joy, all the things of Christmas. If he has the right to do that over the universe, he has the ability to do that in our own lives as well. And what these verses show us is that Jesus is the infinite, eternally existent, all-powerful creator of the universe, which means he is uniquely positioned to help us in the midst of our pain and in our suffering. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's, Let's think about that verse again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so, so Jesus in him is life. So the, the one who gives like an, an animating existence, the, the breath and life and movement and, and, and uh, vivacity and all these things that say like life, like the, the, the fullness of what it means to exist, that comes from the internal power of Jesus. In him was life. Life exists inside of him. And from that, light flows out to all of mankind. Okay, so light in the Hebrew concept is, is uh, purity and goodness, but it's also like understanding, like having a picture of how things work. Just like if you're confused when the darkness is around you, you don't know where you're going in the dark. When the light comes on, you have clarity. There, there's order. You, you know what the next steps are. All of those things are bound up in the person of Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And here comes the most beautiful part for Christmas. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Like I said, remember, it feels like these last few years, darkness has just been pounding against our hearts. Time and time again, anytime you, you, you turn away for one second, it feels like darkness is going to win. But what he's saying here is this, this, uh, um, this physical truth. It's also this metaphysical truth, the idea that when light shines in the darkness, darkness never overcomes it. 
So imagine that you're, you're walking through the, the, the woods on a completely dark night. There's no moon. There, there's a heavy cloud cover, so there's no stars. There's, there's, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And you run into a cabin in the middle of the woods where there's a fire inside. Okay, what happens when you open the door to the cabin? Does the darkness seep into the cabin and envelop all the light inside? No, when you open a door on a dark night, the light bursts forth into the darkness. Light always overcomes darkness, and darkness will never overcome the light. So when we talk about our lives and what we're feeling, what we're saying is that the, the darkness of despair will always lose to the light of Jesus. Okay, the, the darkness of a hopeless existence will always lose to the light of Jesus. The, the darkness of feeling like our lives are disordered and chaotic and we don't know what we're doing, that will always lose to the light of Jesus. The light of Jesus will always overcome whatever exists in the dark. And, and this is why this is so important for Christmas, because in him was life which means that the only place that you and I can find life is from Jesus. The, the reason it matters that Jesus is infinite is because that means there's an infinite amount of life available to us. The reason it matters that Jesus is eternal is that means that there will never come a sunset on when we can get life from Jesus. If you and I get all of our life from Jesus, we will find the hope and the peace and the love and the joy and all the things that Christmas point to. But if you look to anything else in the world for life, you will end up with depression, with despair, with hopelessness, with discouragement, all of those things. So, so think about what, what the world is offering you this Christmas. They're saying, uh, may, maybe in your Christmas party, you will find life. Okay, that life, whatever it is, is going to be finite and small and temporary. And that will always lose to the life that you could find in Jesus. Okay, what, what about the, the life you hope you get from your time off of work? Well, that's temporary. That's fine. Eventually, you have to go back to, 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 to paying the man, right? To, to working for a living, providing for everyone, all those things. Okay, what about like all the toys that everyone offers at Christmas? That's always the easiest example, right? The idea of like if you get that Mercedes with the red bow on the roof, then you will finally have life, right? But I think we all know how finite and small and temporary that kind of life is. Do you know that they've actually they've done a study about uh, new cars and the effect that it has on your happiness? And they found that within a few weeks, your happiness from getting a new car is completely gone and your life is exactly like it was before. Okay, so, so, so if that's what you're looking to for life, that, that Mercedes with the red bow, that is inevitably temporary. But if, if you get all of your life from Jesus, Jesus is eternal, he is infinite, he is fully God, he is completely the only one to whom we can look to for our Savior. It's like we've been saying, like, you and I, we're the furthest thing from God, but that's only half of the story. Okay, that, that's the bad news of what we've been talking about. The other side of it is the good news of what Christmas is that says, but through the incarnation, God is no longer the furthest thing from us. I look at John 1, 14. This is one of the verses we're going to come back to every week. And the word, that eternally existent logos, the creator of all things, seen and unseen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, th th if we are looking for life this Christmas, we cannot look in anything temporary or finite. It's only in the eternal and infinite son of God that we can find our life. Get all of your life from Jesus. And after you get all of your life from Jesus, everything else will start to make sense as well. Okay, the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So if Jesus is the infinite, eternally existent, all-powerful creator of the universe, author of all life, source of all goodness, completely, truly, and fully God, then that concept is going to completely upend how we do Christmas, right? The person of Christ will always triumph over the spirit of Christmas. 
And so what our task is as followers of Christ this Christmas then is to be intentional about engaging the person of Christ and not getting duped by the spirit of Christmas, right? Because, because the, our culture loves to just dabble a little bit of Jesus, mix a little bit of Jesus in with everything else going on in the world, right? You, you, you can go to Starbucks and on their playlist you can hear Joy to the World and then the next song is Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer. And what they're trying to do is say it doesn't really matter what you believe, just have a good time this Christmas. But what our task as Christians is, is to get all of our life from Jesus. And once we get all of our life from Jesus, we will find all the other things we're looking for. We'll find true hope. We'll find true love and joy and peace and all of those things. And so what our goal is this Christmas is to be intentional about how we pursue getting our life from Jesus. All right, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Lamentations 3.21, where, where the uh, city of Jerusalem has been sacked. The Babylonians have come. They're taking everyone off into captivity. And, and the prophet Jeremiah says, after talking for three chapters of Lamentations about how terrible the world is, about how much it seems like darkness is winning and darkness is taking over everything, then Jeremiah says in Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations 3.21, he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He says in the midst of that despair, he intentionally calls the truth to mind and he produces hope. And the truth that he calls to mind is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so when we talk about Advent devotionals and things like that, if, you, if you're not on the church email list on our website, we, we put a list of recommendations for Advent devotionals this year and some recommendations of how to engage those. But the reason we talk about that every year at Christmas is because it's a way of intentionally calling to mind the goodness of Jesus and, per, and finding hope in who Jesus is. And so if you haven't done anything for Advent yet, what we're encouraging everyone to do as a church family is to, to choose a devotional, right? It's on our website. There's a list of several great options. There's plenty of others out there that we didn't list. Choose a devotional and then have a relaxed intentionality with how you go about your Advent. And, and the reason we want to call it a relaxed intentionality is because sometimes we're like, I'm going to do 17 devotionals. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast the entire month of December. I'm going to do all these things to make sure that my soul is thriving. And we, we're so intense that we end up falling off the wagon and we're like, ah, I'm not even going to try. Now I'm so far behind. And so, so pick a devotional, have a relaxed intentionality where you say, hey, if I only get five of the seven this week, that's fine. But I'm going to be intentional with those five. I'm going I'm to grab my family or my roommates or whoever I live with. I'm going to sit down with them and I'm going to process what it is that this devotional is telling us about who Jesus is. That relaxed intentionality. Develop a liturgy with how you do your devotional. Light a candle, say a prayer, do the reading, talk about it pray, and then go. Like it should only take 10 to 15 minutes, but sometimes when we are that intentional with our discipleship, that 10 or 15 minutes grows into an hour and a half, and sometimes it's the most beautiful hour and a half you can have uh, as, as a family or as a, as a, uh, with your roommates, or if you live by yourself, find someone, uh, go through it over Zoom together, call them on the phone, whatever it is, be intentional with how you do that, and then celebrate throughout the month of December what it is that God is doing in our lives. And so that, that's our goal this, this December, is that we would be able to meditate on the fact that, that in our ourselves. We are the furthest thing from God, but through the incarnation, God is no longer the furthest thing from us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So let's spend this month focusing on the glory of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that these short five verses are so rich and so packed with so many things that we can't even barely scratch the surface this morning. I pray that as we go to our discussion tables, as we process uh, who it is that you are, uh, what it means for your son to have come to earth, what it means for him to be eternally existent and infinite and all of those amazing attributes, I pray that this conversation would uh, nourish our souls, it would encourage our hearts, that we would be able to understand uh, just a, another facet of who you are and your beauty, 
Uh, I pray that as we understand that, that it would lead to a, a deep change in our hearts, that we would not look to the things of this world and look to them as sources of life, but we would recognize that, that in Jesus and in Jesus alone is life. God, we thank you that he promised that he came to give us life and life more abundant than we could even think to ask for. God, I pray that as we, as we find our life in him, that that abundant life would give us hope and joy and peace and love. Uh, I also pray, God, that as we find our life in him, that we would be able to love those around us out of the overflow of that life that you have given us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. What we're going to do now is uh, spend some time at our discussion tables. So if this is your, your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, the reason we sit at tables is so that after we process something from the Word, we can process it together at our tables. We don't want to leave the application to ourselves later on down the road. We want to get to work right now saying, how does the truths we just discussed actually come to bear on our lives Monday through Friday? And so uh, we have some questions to get us started. Uh, total is safe space. Share whatever you are comfortable with. But first of all, uh, what aspects of the Christmas season and personally distract you from Jesus? What is it about this season that can be dangerous or perilous for your soul and can take your gaze off of who Jesus is? Secondly, what plans do you have to keep Jesus first in your heart this Christmas? Uh, do you have an Advent devotional you're going to do, and who will you process it with? We just want to kind of give this a place to, to, to make some decisions and to, to get out there what it is we're going to do, make a plan. And lastly, where else besides Jesus do you look for life? What are the things, the finite, temporary, small things that you look to and you say, I hope they give me life instead of looking to Jesus? And how is, how is Jesus better than that? So we'll do that for 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship and communion and prayer. Thanks. Well, we're going to move into our time of uh, communion at the Lord's table. And when Jesus was with the disciples, he, he told them, we'll eat this meal, and then we'll we won't eat this meal again until the new kingdom comes. And so even at the very first uh, Lord's table, there was that sense of hope, which is what we talked about today and what we're considering in this month of Advent. And so I want us to go to the table this morning with a, with a spirit of hope, uh, with a sense of hope that uh, as the old uh, creed and hymn said, Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ will come again. Amen. That's how they ate the first uh, supper together with that hope. So we practice open communion here at Missio. If you're a believer in Christ, uh, we invite you to the table. Even if you're visiting today, we invite you to come take with us. And during these next two songs, we can go uh, to one of the various uh, stations around. Let's remember uh, the body and the blood of Christ uh, shed for us in hope uh, that he will come again for us. So let's stand together. And uh, you go as you feel led during this next time, and we'll remember the Lord together today.